This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, what federal employees need to know about gender pay equity and paid time off to vote. I'll talk to the director of the Office of Personnel Management and using tech to repair our democracy. Congressman Ro Khanna argues that equal access to technology is the key to dignity in a digital age. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Office of Personnel Management is the federal government's HR agency. Joining me now with the latest news and announcements affecting federal civilian employees is the director of OPM, Kieran Ahuja. Director Ahuja, welcome back to the program. Thank you, thanks for having me back. So let's start with the newest announcement, mm -hmm. which is um, regarding federal workers um, and paid time off to vote. Yes, we're very excited about this announcement. It's, uh, I believe it's an, an important endeavor as we think about, you're gonna hear me say a lot about the government being a model employer and how being the largest employer, how we need to really set uh, the standard expectations of how we want to um, see other employers show up and, and the kind of impact that we want. And this is exactly what we're doing here with our new voting guidance. It actually expands uh, opportunities for voting. So we know that elections aren't just taking place the day of election. It gives more time, it gives time off for early voting, also for the day of elections. And that's, that's a change here. So we want folks to be able to engage um, in their elections, all up and down local, state, federal. So that's a big piece of it, as well as the expansion of uh, leave for participating as a nonpartisan poll worker. So, and I think this speaks to, you know, federal government employees, they are committed to the civil service, committed to public service, I think, you know, are, are great participants in our democracy and we want to continue that. And I think this guidance sets the stage for how we want to engage in that, part, you know, encourage that participation. We want to remove barriers to voting. Uh, and again, we want to be able to set the, the standard for how we should be showing up as an employer. But, but what was the policy before? Like, what's the change here? Well, it gives up to four hours of administrative leave. Uh, it goes beyond just election day to early voting. And the additional piece is actually the up to you know, four hours to be a nonpartisan poll worker. So, you know, I think there are lots of ways we want to promote civic duty and civic engagement. And this was a way that we thought would be meaningful to create that expansion and that opportunity for our federal workers. I wonder if there's anything that OPM can do to encourage private employers mm -hmm. to do the same thing. Because it is important for people to be able to feel like they can go and vote without you right. know, missing work. Well, no, I mean, you know, now we see where in, in the uh, polling locations, you know, where you see the rush in the morning before work is start, you know, get started to kind of get your vote in or wait or try to race back um, after work. And, and certainly uh, the early voting days help. Uh, we think, you know, again, we obviously, this is not something we can mandate or, you know, but setting an example we think is a persuasive way uh, to share kind of what we what we're trying to do for our federal workers why we think it's important that we should be encouraging greater participation why we should remove those barriers so it is not the racing in the morning or racing at the end of the day um, to try to you know 
what we is, you know, is a privilege, frankly, to be able to participate. We want to encourage that. Kieran, a few weeks ago there mm -hmm. was uh, Equal Pay Day at mm -hmm. the White House um, to promote gender pay equity. Mm -hmm. How are we in 2022 and women are still getting 83 cents on the dollar right. for equal work? Right. No, I, I think, you know, again, this is something we absolutely need to tackle. This was a part of, Mimi, uh, we had talked about it before, I believe, when I was here last time and shared about the president's executive order focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. The issues around pay equity are a big part of this. Uh, we are, uh, we're adamant, and I think we know this, I mean, you just mentioned it, it's about economic fairness, it's about economic prosperity, but it's also about the moral imperative of what we should be doing. I mean, this is the right thing to do. I will say for the federal government, we do fare better. Uh, we have a 6% pay gap, gender pay gap, compared to 17% nationwide we also Which is still six percent yes much. no 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 <laughs> definitely six, yeah exactly we also uh, for the second year in a row um, have no pay gap in our senior executive service uh, so we want to continue that trend and certainly we have uh, which we find commendable just with the way the pay system is set up is much more equitable there's a lot more transparency in how we list positions the salary ranges that we provide um, in those listings um, so we we want to lean into that visibility what we are doing is saying to your point what is that we need to close that six percent pay gap so a big part of this the executive order that the president issued last year as we come across like a full year is that we are uh, providing tools for agencies to do a pay equity analysis so they can determine uh, where they have barriers to be able to do a bit of that barrier analysis and we're also issuing guidance later this year that's going to be focused on uh, not using prior salary history to set your pay. I can tell you when I came into the federal government they used my nonprofit salary uh, and once you come in, you're on that trajectory, right? So it's important that, you know, that we have found that that really leads to the discrepancies farther along in your federal and career. And it just perpetuates exactly. that. Because it's exactly. like, well, you were making this much, so I'll give you a little bit of a raise yes. to do right? this we job. We have the step increases. Again, it's a very equitable process once you're in, but it's so important uh, where you start and when you come in the door and, you know, where your salary is set. So are you able to guarantee that women and men will make finally make the same in the federal government? Well, I, I mean, saying guarantee, we're certainly going to work hard to do it. I think we have a system in which, like I said, a large part of it is very transparent in how we set pay. I think we need to, you know, part of addressing the prior salary history, you know, through the regulatory process, uh, you know, us wanting to provide the tools to agencies and being very proactive, I think are steps in the right direction and certainly you know six percent is not good but I think it's achievable to close that gap um, and certainly we want to encourage these kinds of practices across the board not just on the federal government in January you announced uh, a federal civilian minimum wage of mm -hmm. fifteen dollars right. per hour what was the motivation for that change you know again I think we I don't think anyone has been kind of you know uh, we've all experienced the, the, the impact of this pandemic. We have all talked about how important it is uh, to support the workforce, you know, our frontline workers, our health workers. Uh, and I think for us front and center, we've been talking a lot about what is 
what should be kind of the minimum wage? We've been, the president's been talking to, certainly appealing to Congress to set a minimum wage. We wanted to make sure if we were going to be uh, pushing for legislation on the Hill, that we wanted to make sure that we had our house in order. Um, and so we did that review. And we, and we realized that we have a little less than 70,000 individuals in the federal government who were making less than $50 per hour. And so we raised their pay back at the end of January, um, and there were 7,000 of those individuals here just in the DMV. We think that this is, you know, again, setting the standard, uh, you know, that we should be that model employer. We should, we should ensure that we are giving workers uh, a fair wage. Um, and, you know, frankly, we want to um, ensure that, uh, you know, those individuals who've been on the front lines, so these workers are our food and concession workers, there are clerical staff, there are workers in veterans hospitals. I mean, these are the folks who've been really showing up during this pandemic. And so. I thought it was interesting that it's yeah. by far the majority are in the Defense Department. Yes, very much so. Very much so. De Department of Defense, uh, uh, Veterans Affairs. Uh, and I believe a few other agencies, but the large majority have been in Department of Defense. I, how much will this pay raise uh, cost, and, and is it funded? Well, you know, this was these were conversations we were having across the board, especially with Department of Defense. You know, I think there was general agreement that this is the right thing to do. Um, certainly, we are appealing to those on the Hill that, you know, we're going to make sure within the federal government that we're not going to pay anyone less than $15 an hour. We certainly think that that's important across this country. Um, it's been a long time since we've raised the federal minimum wage. And I think, you know, again, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was certainly uh, not too much uh, that we didn't think we should be paying people um, at least $15. Um, an hour in the federal government. All right. Well, yeah. Director Ahuja, so nice to talk so to you. Nice thank to you talk for to you. giving us the updates. Yeah, thank you. Coming next, is the U.S. doing enough to arm the Ukrainian military? A member of the House Armed Services Committee joins me. Stay with us. Unequal access to technology and the wealth it generates means that many Americans are left behind in the digital economy. Ro Khanna is a Democratic member of Congress from California's Silicon Valley. He's author of the book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Congressman Khanna, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. I want to ask you first about the, the war in Ukraine. You're on the House Armed Services Committee. Is the U.S. doing enough to arm the Ukrainian military? We are. The president has mobilized all of NATO in support of Ukraine. We're providing anti-aircraft missiles. We're providing anti-tank missiles. We're providing drones that the Ukrainians are using uh, to uh, help defeat some of the Russian advances. Uh, so the president's doing everything possible short of getting into a shooting war with Russia. So what does a successful end to this war look like for Ukraine? And, and what will success look like for the U.S.? That's a very uh, important question. The success has to be a negotiated ceasefire. I think the Ukrainians have already succeeded in showing that Putin will not be able to annex Ukraine. There is no way that Putin is going to now be able to take over Ukraine. The resistance has been too strong, and that's in large part because of some of the weapons that we have provided the Ukrainians. The challenge is Putin is capable of destroying Ukraine. He's destroying lives every day. 
And so there has to be some negotiated ceasefire that has the Russians withdraw, that restores peace. Now, what those exact terms are, I think, are for the Ukrainians and Zelensky to decide what is acceptable to them. And we should be supporting aggressively, aggressively diplomacy and supporting uh, them in reaching that compromise. I wonder what the mood is among your colleagues in Congress regarding what Congress is willing to do to support Ukraine and for how long? There is a bipartisan consensus in a way I have not seen in five years that we need to stand with Ukraine, that Putin is 100% wrong in an immoral, unprovoked war, that we need to do everything we can to provide aid to the Ukrainians, economic aid, that we need to take refugees, that we need to provide them with as many weapons as possible. Uh, and uh, I think the Congress is going to be committed to this uh, for as long uh, as, as it takes. The, my concern is how many Ukrainians are going to die in the process, and that's why we all have to be working at the same time like President Macron and others are to have diplomacy and bring this war to an end. You know, as an Indian American, I want to ask you about India's position. They have abstained from a UN resolution condemning the invasion. What's your reaction to that? Well, I've been critical. I've been vocal and, and critical. Uh, India should uh, condemn uh, Putin's invasion uh, of territorial sovereignty. I mean, India itself is not an expansionist nation. They haven't gone and taken territory. So it should be easy for them to say that uh, a nation state should not have its sovereignty violated. Now, I understand that India gets 60 percent of defense still from Russia and is dependent on oil. Uh, people aren't saying go uh, sever all your relationships. At the very least, they'll condemn Putin in the United Nations. Don't abstain. I want to pivot now to, to talk about technology because you are the, uh, the Silicon Valley congressman. Um, and high-tech, high-paying jobs have been concentrated in certain areas of the country. What does that do to the areas that are left out? Well, in my district, we have wealth that has piled up. $11 trillion of market cap, the most probably prosperity any place in the world ever. And we're going to have 25 million of these digital jobs. They're not just coding jobs, by the way. They're jobs in manufacturing, in retail, in healthcare. We need to decentralize that. We need to make sure that people have the opportunities for wealth generation in a modern economy across the Midwest, in the South, in black and Latino communities. And if we don't do that, we're really depriving large amounts of people, large amounts of Americans of the opportunity for success and prosperity in the 21st century. But does place even matter anymore? You know, with the pandemic, a lot of companies realized that people could work from anywhere and still do the work. Well, this is the great COVID realignment. When I first talked about decentralizing jobs, people in Silicon Valley said, uh, oh, that's crazy, that's not gonna happen. Everyone needs to conglomerate in Silicon Valley. That's how you get creativity. Now uh, I have folks saying, well, of course we're all investing every place in, in the country. Uh, that's already happening. Well, it started to happen. People now realize you don't have to uh, all be on Sand Hill Road to, to start a business, that people can work remotely. And my hope is that this is going to lead to a renaissance, a revival in smaller towns, in mid-sized cities, where people can stay in their hometown if they want and still participate in the modern economy. Well, you know, improved broadband access is included in the new infrastructure law. Will that be enough to bridge the divide? It's a start. Uh, it will be enough 
uh, about $65 billion at Commerce to make a huge dent in getting affordable broadband, both to rural, rural communities and to uh, underprivileged areas in uh, black and Latino communities. Uh, it's not just about getting the last mile of broadband. It's also about making sure it's affordable. But even if we get broadband, we still need a lot more. We need access to jobs. We need to have the credentialing so that people can get those jobs. Again, 25 million of these jobs by 2025, uh, and we're not doing nearly enough to make sure people have these, these jobs that are gonna pay 80,000. You poll in my district that people are very optimistic about America, and that's because they have access to these jobs. We should make sure other people do as well. All right, a quick pause here, Congressman, and then we'll come back. Coming next, I continue my conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna. We'll be right back. I'm back with Congressman Ro Khanna. He's a Democratic member of Congress from California's Silicon Valley. Congressman, you created something called the Internet Bill of Rights. What is that? I did this at the request of Speaker Pelosi with Tim Berners-Lee, who's the founder of the World Wide Web. It's a very simple idea that you should own the rights to your data. Every person should have an inalienable right to their data. Their data shouldn't be taken from them and used to manipulate them or used in ways that they are unaware of or don't approve of. And what do you see as the relationship between the digital economy that we've really been talking about and our freedom and the health of our democracy? Well, there are two aspects uh, to this. This is about our agency, about being empowered in modern life. We need to be empowered as economic actors. That means that we can't have all the jobs and wealth pile up in a few areas, Miami, New York, Silicon Valley. We need people to have access to produce in a modern economy and have jobs that have a technology component. But we also need to make sure that we have agency as citizens. We can't have all this data taken from us and then used by these big companies in ways to target teenagers, uh, which is causing depression or suicide, in targeting uh, individuals to join QAnon or groups uh, that are extremists in promoting disinformation. So we need both empowerment economically and as citizens. Do you think the big tech companies should be regulated by the government? And you know, would that position be popular in your district in Silicon Valley? Absolutely, they need regulations. Uh, I probably want uh, more regulations than some of these companies do, but the reality is look at all of the harm that has been caused because of no regulations. I mean, you have Facebook having studies that are being released saying that teenagers are suicidal or have anxiety or eating disorders because of Instagram. How do you not regulate that? You have hate and violence where on social media, people were talking about assassinating Vice President Pence. How is that permissible? So we have a wild west right now. We need well-crafted regulation. That doesn't mean you should, shouldn't have free speech, but it has to be responsible free speech of the kind that we're having on this uh, show. You've recommended creating a national digital core that would be similar to the Peace Corps. How would it work and, and what would they do? We have so much talent in this country in technology. We have the leading technologists uh, in the world. Many of them come from different parts of the country. Many of them want to give back uh, to their community. And what I've said is, if you want to go back to your hometown, if you want to go back to a rural town, we should have a stipend for that, and they can help 
their community college, their land grant university, their private industry prepare for many of these jobs of the future. By the way, many of them don't require a college degree, require a nine month course, a 10 month course, and they don't require a lot of coding. They just require a comfort in technology and their pathways to the middle class. You know, the administration has been very vocal about not only the need to hire more high-tech workers into the federal government, but to increase diversity. I wonder what your recommendations are regarding that for the federal workforce. Well, it's a big challenge in technology, both in the federal technology workforce and in Silicon Valley. Uh, the workforce is too male. Uh, it's too white and Asian. There are not enough women. There are not enough African-Americans. There are not enough uh, Latino Americans. There are not enough folks from rural America. And so we really need to be intentional about getting talent uh, from across the country uh, and, and have benchmarks uh, or the diversity is not going to change. And that hurts uh, the government. It hurts the tech companies because there's so much talent out there that we're missing. Congressman, I don't need to tell you that Congress has become very partisan. I wonder what you think the chances are of your colleagues working together to advance these tech issues that we've been talking about. Well, there's reason for hope. There is a bill, the Competes Act, that will be the largest investment in technology and science since the Kennedy years, over $200 billion creating tech centers across America. It's wildly bipartisan. It has Mitch McConnell support. It passed the, the Senate with 69 votes. It's passed the House. It will get to the president's desk. It's going to lead to things like Intel investing $20 billion to create manufacturing jobs in the center of Ohio with a Republican governor, Mike DeWine. So when it comes to making sure America wins and not China, making sure that we have the technology infrastructure across America, those are bipartisan issues. All right. Well, Congressman, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and, and good luck with all those initiatives. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. 
It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.